He was born into wealth and privilege. As a young man, he was a fan of the latest popular music and also the latest trends in fashion. He was handsome. He was witty. He spent money lavishly, just throwing it around. His life was set out for him by family expectation and the sure knowledge that he would inherit the lucrative family business. He was marked out early to be a success, to be a nobleman. One day while watching over the family business, he was approached by a panhandler, someone asking for help. And our young man, who was so moved by this sight, gave the man all the money he had in his pockets. When his father found out, he was furious. I mean, this is the kind of thing that just wasn't done. But that experience stirred something in the heart, and there would be no going back. He eventually renounced the family fortune. He gave away all he had and committed his life to serving the poor and living in solidarity with them. The story could be contemporary, couldn't it? But it actually took place 800 years ago. The young man was Giovanni di Pietro di Bernadon. We know him now as St. Francis. By his example and through the establishing of communities that were marked by joy and the Eucharist and the renunciation of wealth, Francis remains one of the most influential people of the Christian tradition. Now, there have been legends and tall tales and things like that that uh, have sprung up around him. But what cannot be denied is the depth of the character and the commitment to Christ's call that he heard and that he followed that would lead him to a radical change of life. He was not interested in the lure of money or influence or power or even a career in the church, which would have offered him comfort and standing. Instead, he saw in Jesus and in his cross an invitation of love to be where Jesus is, among the poor and the dispossessed of the world. The current pope took the name Francis because he was challenged by one of his cardinals, fellow cardinals, as it appeared that he was about to be chosen to, be, to lead the Roman church. Uh, this friend of his leaned over and he said, don't forget the poor. Pope Francis said this about his namesake. He said, he brought to Christianity an idea of poverty against the luxury, the pride, the vanity of the civil and ecclesiastical powers of the time. He changed history. And we celebrate his life and his legacy today on his feast day, October the 4th. We remember that he chose the radical pursuit of the kingdom of God rather than allegiance to the system of the world, what we might call empire, kingdom and empire. You know, there's something for us here today other than just to kind of note his life. I think especially in the times that we find ourselves. We have Francis, but we also have Paul today from his letter to the Philippians. <clears throat> and they're both holding out an urgent invitation to us by example and by direct appeal to radically commit to Christ against all other things that might seem to hold some advantage for us. Paul is writing from prison, yet it's a letter that's bathed in joy. Eugene Peterson said it's the happiest of Paul's epistles. <laughs> that's, how he, that's how he talked about it. And it just underscores the consistent message from Paul that he's not governed by the circumstances of his life, right? Whatever his circumstance, he has joy because of his status in the kingdom of God, a status that he didn't earn, 
There was no merit in it on his part. It was simply received as divine gift from God. That's the source of joy. And as Paul's writing to this church, he's concerned that the young believers not lose their joy by being pressured uh, to adopt certain external practices like circumcision. So he sort of, you know, chapter 3 begins and there's this real strong word. It almost sort of doesn't fit uh, the rest of the letter. Some people have even suggested it might be another letter entirely just sort of plugged in here. I don't think that's necessary because Paul's message is consistent. It's about the joy in knowing Christ, joy in the humility of Jesus, joy in the gentleness, joy in avoiding anxiety through constant prayer, joy in knowing the peace of God. And how does that come? It all comes through knowing Jesus and walking with him. But Paul does say this, he goes, you know, if we're going to place confidence in Jewish credentials, then I got it and better than most. And he, he describes it. He was circumcised according to the law, the eighth day. That's basically a way of saying I'm not a latecomer to this. This has been my whole life. Of the tribe of Benjamin, and there is some hierarchy in the tribes. I mean, this was a tribe that, that remained loyal to David. He was a Pharisee when it came to the law, meaning he had kept all the requirements. He was zealous, even to the point of killing Christians. And as to the righteousness, as the law saw it, in other words, that righteousness earned, he said, I'm without fault. Paul's saying, I can play the game. I have membership in all the clubs that count. I can open doors. I've done all I needed to get ahead and then some. But you know what? That is not where it is. In fact, he says, it's all garbage. It's meaningless when considered against belonging to Christ and being part of his kingdom. Moving forward to him and looking forward to all that will be revealed. Paul's on a journey with Christ at the center, as the source. And now there are credentials that we've been given in Christ that far exceed anything that we could work to achieve. We have righteousness. That means right standing. Not self-righteousness, but right standing, about proper status that comes from God on the basis of faith in Christ. We now know life through his life. We've been moved into his kingdom, and we're called to live now in a certain way. This is sometimes known as sort of the, the great exchange that takes place from one kingdom to another, between righteousness that's construed as human achievement and righteousness experienced as divine gift. They're totally different things, and they result in clearly divergent identities, attitudes, and actions. The way we live in one, we cannot live in the other. In God's kingdom, we're on a trajectory of hope, walking the way of humility and love, pressing on with anticipation and eagerness for the full revealing of Christ's reign. Last week, as Amanda preached from chapter 2, we learned a little of what that journey looks like. It's a downward journey. It means following where Jesus leads in the way that he shows us. It means caring for others. It means mercy and forgiveness, gentleness joy, so on. It means the fruit of the Spirit. Paul is addressing here primarily the pressure for Gentile believers to conform to Jewish standards. That's what he's talking about. 
He's saying that's not what it's about. It's about Jesus and what he's done, what he offers to us. And I'm going forward with him. For Paul, the future is not in the past. The future is in the future. Now, I don't think it's out of line for us to, to read this and let our kind of imaginations go to other things that we might appeal to for credential or standing or qualification, especially as the community of the church together, gathered. Paul says it's no longer about circumcision. That's really not a debate that we have, is it? But in other places, he said it's no longer about social position or gender or ethnicity. And these are things that in the world system can lend status or privilege or advantage or the opposite and do so unjustly. But they do not operate that way in the kingdom of God. In Paul's language, we press forward and upward in Christ and we leave those things behind. Now, I don't know about you, but I think this last week has to be one of the strangest weeks in the strangest year that we have known. I had a friend that I was talking with the other day on the phone. We were supposed to have a meeting. He says, I'm going to be late to the meeting because, he said, my, my refrigerator broke down overnight. I said, oh, man, okay. Yeah, I'm trying to get a repair person out here to take care of it. And I said, what, I said, what was going on with the fridge? He says, 2020. That's going to be our excuse now for all the weird stuff. It's 2020. It's certainly a unique time. I was on a call with Bishop Todd Hunter and a number of other clergy on Wednesday morning. And there was, I have to say, quite a bit of distress and concern about the nature of the presidential debate that had taken place the night before. And Todd said, basically, he said, what we witnessed going on there, he said, that whole thing was about empire. It was about the values and systems of the world and what's important to it. And then he encouraged us as pastors. He said, the church has always existed in difficult times. You know, it's always had to carry out the mission of God's kingdom over and against the demands of empire. Sometimes we enter a, uh, an era where there seems to be a little bit of peace between the two, or where it appears that we might be headed the same direction, church and society together, but we must be careful not to equate the two. Even where our goals may seem similar, the way to get there will be totally different. The kingdom future is a hopeful one, no matter the present situation, because Jesus is alive and working. You know, the pursuit of empire, that pursuit of the worldly system, has, has long been a temptation for the church. Maybe we have to go all the way back to the conversion of Constantine, and we see that, and how that's played out over, over history. Because we too often seek status and influence and power, which we want to claim for good purposes, without recognizing the dangers. I think we should see these things as Paul viewed his own past credentials, and as Francis viewed his wealth and position, as loss for the gain of Christ himself. Now, it's not a, I'm not suggesting a retreat from the world, but a commitment to God's kingdom, because we are in the world, aren't we? But we must not be of it. It's a matter of where do we put our confidence? Where do we look for the healing of our own lives and the world around us? 
Historian Nathan Hatch recently reminded us that the church has its own unique task in the world, beginning with humility and self-criticism. The church should do the work, he says, that only it can do as a place where people encounter God, where habits are formed, where desires are shaped, love instilled that's appropriate rather than disordered. You know, when we gather to worship and when we gather to pray and to study, to listen, to reflect, to serve with Jesus at the center, souls are shaped in a certain way, in a powerful way. In that place, we know redemption and reconciliation, and then we can share those, uh, <clears throat> share those values with people beyond the walls of the church. But the church as a community is essential in forming people, informing us, so that we can carry out that work in the world. Hatch is calling the church back to religious and moral formation of building communities that bind people together, in which there's a sense of mystery and goodness and wisdom that's not all about individual wants and desires, whose purpose, he says, is to embody, actually to look like God's kingdom. Wow. Now this takes discernment for us, doesn't it? about listening to the Spirit. What does that look like for us? And I think we're in that season, and the sermons over the last several months have really been, uh, sermons speaking to me, and I think to others about that sort of uh, formation as a community. You know, we've been talking about forgiveness and, and conflict and humility, and here it's about, you know, setting aside the things that would would appeal to us or that we might use to get a certain advantage and seeing them as lost for Christ and putting, putting our energies into the kingdom of God exclusively. Henri Nouwen, uh, it's, you know, he's, he's gone now. He's, he's with the Lord, but he continues to live on through all of the, the blog postings that his, his many disciples and followers post, and I guess I'm eager to read them, so... This is something that was posted this week, just two days ago, and I think it really relates to what Paul is saying here and the example of Francis as well. He says, how can we live in the midst of a world marked by fear, hatred, and violence and not be destroyed by it? When Jesus prays to his Father for his disciples, he responds to this question by saying, I'm not asking you to remove them from the world, but to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. That's John 17. To live in the world without belonging to the world summarizes the essence of the spiritual life. The spiritual life keeps us aware that our true house is not the house of fear, in which the powers of hatred and violence rule, but the house of love where God resides. The world system is enticing, isn't it? It can be. And it's not always headed in the wrong way. I mean, there is common grace in the world, after all. But the more we press into a community with Jesus at the center, desiring to know him in the power of his resurrection, even as we participate in his sufferings, as Paul says, the more our voice will be his, our hands his, our feet his, our love to those around will be his. And the healing for the nations, races, peoples, will be his. It was a number of years ago when I was working with uh, a group called uh, Anglican Mission in the Americas. 
and um, I was serving as their communications director, and we, had, we were all living in different places in the U.S., and we met in Atlanta. That's generally where we would go to have meetings. And there was a, a time when I got to the, the time early, and I basically had a whole afternoon that was, was open, and I uh, found myself in the center of what is now kind of, I think it's actually part of the National Park Service, but it's a, a whole center dedicated to the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and I went through the museum, and it was really uh, enlightening, and I learned a lot that I did not know. And then I wandered across the street to the old church. And that church is, has been uh, just retained as it is, as it was, because they built a new church that seats a couple thousand people, and that's where all the stuff goes on now. But this church is kind of a, um, it's just a reminder. And it was wonderful because it was empty. I mean, there was somebody there welcoming, but there, was, it wasn't, there were no crowds. It was completely empty. And it's not a big church either. It's, uh, it'd be a little bit bigger than this building, but it's not, it's not a large space. And I had the time just to sit there, you know, to sit in the pews and look at the pulpit and imagine the choir singing and imagine the, the sermons preached in that place, knowing that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. grew up in that church because his father was a senior pastor. He preached his first sermon in that church. He sang in the choir as a, as a junior high student in that church. In fact, in some of the just weird stuff, terrible stuff, now we know this, uh, they dressed him up in a choir at the opening of Gone with the Wind at, at the movie theater in downtown Atlanta. I mean, it was just, but he loved to sing. He loved to be a part of that church. And as I was there, there was an elderly woman, a beautiful lady who just was sort of near the front door welcoming people that would come in. And I greeted her, and um, she said, you know, she says, Dr. King Sr., she goes, married me and my husband 50 years ago in this church. I said, that's wonderful. And we kind of talked about that a little bit. She wanted to know who I was and what I was doing. And when I told her I was working in pastoral ministry, she said, well, there's something that you might be interested to know that most people don't know and it's not really been written about. And I said, what's that? She goes, this church, Ebenezer, which is now famous, she goes, this was not the big church. This was not the established church. That was up the street. That's where the, that's where the business owners went to church. That's where the people who were really connected, trying to work in politics and so on. She goes, that's, she goes that was up the road. She goes, this, we were not the main church. We were, we were kind of the second church. We weren't really the important church. That spoke to me in a lot of ways, and on a lot of levels. But one was I knew they were about the business of shaping souls. They were about, the, and they were active in the community. They, they, they did, they worked for justice and so on, but really they were about preaching and teaching and baptizing and raising children, making Christians. Now, I'm not saying the other church was empire and, and the smaller churches are the kingdom. I'm not making that distinction at all. I'm just saying in this case, when I learned that, I thought, wow, this formed people, and it's the kind of church that formed people in such a way that it would form a young man his whole life to stand for nonviolence, 
when all of those around him, even close to him, were screaming the words of empire that we need to be violent. There's something about the church being that's here online, however we're doing that these days, it's about saying we're, we're resisting the voice and the call of empire. We're doing what the church is called to do. We're shaping people. We're shaping, being shaped by Christ's presence with him at the center. And you know, that'll make all the difference in the world. For the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.